Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, plans for a Cape Cod drug rehab facility next to a grade school stirs controversy and worries that plummeting milk prices will drive up New England farmer suicides. Plus, former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer on a memoir tour in his home state of Rhode Island. Later in the show, millions of women face life-threatening pregnancy complications. Researchers gather for a first-of-its-kind Boston conference this week, focusing on the increase in pregnancy and childbirth complications and women's health. But first, joining me from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, which airs daily on WNHN-FM 94.7. Welcome back, Arnie. It's a pleasure. Joining me from the Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Phil. Hi, Kelly. And joining me from Cape Cod, Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello, Patrick. Hello, everybody. Patrick, I'm going to start off with you because the the Gosnold um, facility, and well known really actually in um, treatment facilities, mental health, the whole thing, it's, it's a it's a very uh, um, respected institution, wants to expand their drug rehab facility, and it, the location happens to be near a grade school. Well, everybody is up in arms there. Talk to us about it. Yeah, people are really upset about this. And prior to this, and, and probably even now, everybody considers them an organization that does great work in terms of addressing uh, the crying need for uh, addiction services. Um, one of those needs is beds, really, and, and a place where people can go and rehab and, and basically work through their addiction issues. They have a facility in Falmouth already, um, and this is another facility that they want to put in. It's going into, or they want it to go into this nursing home that they say is kind of the perfect location, the infrastructure, everything's there for them. Again, it just happens to be by this school, this Morse Pond school, which is an elementary school, really right next door. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's borders it. And so parents, uh, once they got wind of this, really got quite exercised about it. Educators are, are worried uh, about what could happen there and how it could spill over and affect the uh, children who are going to school there. But it is interesting because you could have almost seen this, this train coming down the track, um, and it's hard to believe that Gosnold didn't think about this uh, and think about where they were locating this when they went through their planning. But it seems like they were in some ways blindsided by the reaction. So uh, it's going forward. There are meetings. Everybody's meeting everybody. The police chief, the school superintendent uh, is now involved in, in planning a meeting. They're putting together a committee to, to try and work through some of these issues. But it is one of those 
topics where people seem to be in their camps. Uh, they don't want it there. The parents and the educators and, and the folks who are obviously planning uh, this uh, facility want to put it there and think it's the ideal place for it. Well, I know there's a big meeting that's going to be held on July 25th, bringing all concerned folks together to, to have the next big discussion about it. So as I understand it, that people get arrested for selling drugs near schools, period. So I guess this is slightly different because there nobody's selling drugs. This is an addiction facility. But I guess I thought, in general, any kind of drug activity, whether it be uh, wherever it is along the spectrum, could not be located near an elementary school or a school of any sort. Am I wrong? I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. Drug activity is kind of a broad term. Right. I think in this case, it's supposed to be not drug activity. It's right. supposed to be people who are recovering from uh, too much drug activity, if you will. Um, the police do say that at the current facility, they have responded for some of the things you might expect at a rehab facility as people are going through that very difficult process of, of trying to get off drugs or alcohol. Intoxicated persons, there's been overdoses, um, suicide attempts, threats. So all the things that the people who are worried about this point to and say, that's what we don't want here next to a school. Um, the Gosnold folks say they're bringing in a security team. They're going to try and address all these issues and make it as safe as possible. But that's exactly what people are worried about. And we talked to our reporter, Christine Legere, talked to a police officer who used to work at, at the Falmouth Police Department. And he said for the current facility, People would also, as they were going into the facility, and it's maybe something people are aware of, they would have their consume their drugs or alcohol beforehand because they knew they were going to some place where they wouldn't get access to it. So they were kind of going there intoxicated, and that was something that he said they would respond to as police officers and also people kind of doing the whole prison thing where they throw things over the fence to get to people who are in rehab, whether it's drugs or alcohol. Um, and he said, imagine that happening next to a school. So a lot of really emotional uh, debate over this. There was a meeting earlier this week where the chairwoman of the Board of Selectmen in Falmouth was actually shouted down, had to adjourn the meeting. Huge crowd had showed up. And you can imagine some of these meetings going forward, that July 25th meeting and others are just going to be packed and people are going to be uh, very vocal about their thoughts on both sides of this. Uh, that's my guest, Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Arnie. Yeah, so I just want to respond first to your comment, Callie, and that this is replacing a nursing home, a 99-bed nursing home, with this drug facility. Uh, nursing homes use a lot of drugs, too. <laughs> Remember, no, we're talking about point. old people. Who yeah. are, no, no, no. So, mm -hmm. so you can't use that as your line of demarcation. What I think, however, you can use your line of demarcation is the fact that we're going from, we're looking at an experience that they have with a 35-bed facility now to an experience that they may have with a 99-bed facility. When you have uh, 73 calls to the the cops uh, in 2017, 52 times just between January and July 6th, uh, calling for a whole series of reasons, intoxicated persons, overdose reports, unwanted guests. And that's for a 35-bed facility. Imagine the potential numbers for 99. I'm one of those people that I, I understand, you know, not in my backyard. I totally get it. But this is right next to an elementary school. This is a very, very, very provocative facility just because you're dealing with the most challenged people. And if you already have an experience and they show those numbers at the smaller facility, imagine the potential for 99. I do think they were foolish. I understand why they saw this as a perfect switch from, you know, this to a rehab, nursing home to a rehab. But the location really, truly does matter. And the experience at the 35-bed facility suggests to me that this is probably not the best location. And yet, Philip, um, what we know is that um, there is such a crying need for beds to treat well, these addictions, and they're expert at it. 
Yes. So before weighing in on this conversation, I went and checked to the U.S. Department of Health and Services. They have some numbers up about the opiate opiate epidemic, which is, of course, is ongoing, which is a crisis in our country. It's an emergency. Just to refresh everyone's memory, in 2016, 116 people died every day in this country from opioid-related drug overdoses. Over 42,000 people died from overdosing on opioids. There were over $504 billion in economic costs. And we are going to need somehow to find our way out of this emergency, this public health crisis in this country. And I'm not saying that the people in this community don't deserve to be heard and that there shouldn't be a robust hearing process about where this rehabilitation site should be located. But I also think this should be a moment for all of us to check our empathy levels, to check our stigma levels about uh, substance abuse and mental health. Nobody wakes up and decides they want to become a drug addict. These are people's brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and they need help. And I think we as a society, if we're ever going to get out of this crisis we're in, where people are dying by the scores every day, we are going to need to make some hard decisions about where these rehabilitation centers are going to go and what our own personal attitudes are about these people who aren't well and need to get better. And yeah. Just to jump back in here, uh, I think the the opponents of this are quick to say it's not the stigma we're reacting to, and both are, are accurate in, in what you just said, but it's not the stigma we're reacting to. It is literally the location. The only other thing about it is they actually have some leverage, and the leverage is school choice. Mm. There have been 60 families who have said they will withdraw their, their students from, mm. the, from the district, and the money goes with them. And so if you end up in that situation, uh, certainly the town and the school are looking at that and certainly empathy and and everything you just said, but there's a practicality that the effect on the schools, if people make individual decisions about their children going there, could have a real financial impact on the district and that could be a real problem for them that they're Arnie, I'm going to leave it there, right? Because I know we circle back to this, I'm sure, uh, in in the future with these upcoming meetings. you know, that's a it's a real provocative situation. So moving on, um, I want to turn to you, Philip, because the Rhode Island uh, attorney general has filed a first of its kind lawsuit. There have been some lawsuits filed against about climate change. And it's kind of tricky because you, some people can't go against the federal government or the local or whatever. But anyway, uh, Rhode Island has seems to have found a sweet spot in which to go forward. Yes. Yeah, so recently, Rhode Island's Attorney General Peter Kilmartin, along with the governor and at least three members of the congressional delegation, they held a press conference at a seawall right next to the water in Narragansett, Rhode Island, a scenic location to announce that they were uh, filing a lawsuit against, as the Providence Journal reported, some of the largest fossil fuel companies alleging that they knowingly contributed to climate change and seeking to hold them responsible for its impacts on Rhode Island. I believe there were 21 fossil fuel companies listed, 21 defendants, including ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron, and Shell. And in this lawsuit, they listed, uh, the attorney general listed some of the resources in Rhode Island that stand to be threatened by uh, sea, uh, sea level rise and climate change in general. 4,000 residential units, 96 dams that are classified as a high hazard, 573 miles of roadway, As you said, Callie, this isn't the first uh, exactly of its kind. There have been some similar lawsuits filed in California, which have kind of gone either way in terms of whether they were allowed to proceed. 
Um, it'll be really interesting to watch this. Uh, this is in the state level of Rhode Island. Um, to go back to our previous topic, we've now seen cities and towns and states all over the country filing lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies and distributors uh, for their role in the opiate epidemic. I think uh, that is a, a bit more of a bipartisan consensus subject, whereas climate change remains controversial. Uh, I'm wondering if there will be a similar kind of domino snowball effect where other left-leaning states are going to file uh, similar suits. But it is going to be really interesting to watch what happens here in Rhode Island. And I will note, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse was at the uh, the announcement of this lawsuit. He's a former attorney general of Rhode Island, and he's, of course, the senator famous for giving over 100 speeches on the Senate floor in Washington about climate change. And he often touches specifically on uh, the, the grave and immediate risks facing his home state of Rhode Island. So uh, something to keep an eye on here. And just to be clear, it's called the first of its kind because no other state has sued the fossil fuel companies. The suits have addressed other ways of uh, impact on uh, climate change, but not gone directly at fossil fuel companies. I'm going to move on from there because I want to get to you, Arnie. But before before just, I do that, uh, Kelly, just before yes. you do move on there, I'm sorry. It, mm-hmm. it actually has happened before, and I know because we have an attorney who has a home here, and, and those suits have been filed against fossil fuel companies. They haven't done very well, but they have happened, just just an FYI. Okay, so this must be the only one. Okay, let me get this right now. It's the only That's state. That's gone, gone, the only state that state, has done state. it. State, yes. State, yes. okay. Yes. Just so yes. we're clear about the, but the we, difference. But we, we actually have sued gas companies yes. for MTBE. Exactly. For MTBE. Just to remind you, there, there is a pattern here, tobacco, There's MTBE, a lot of lawsuits opioid. going on. Well, exactly. in New York City exactly. itself has sued fossil fuel companies. I believe state attorney generals, and again, not to belabor it, but I, I've, I've written about this before, in Massachusetts, in New York, California, Maine, mentioned, have supported or been part of lawsuits against fossil fuel companies. It's happened. It just, it hasn't gone well for them. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Uh, Arnie, I want to get to you about uh, dairy farmers. I mean, there's nothing more to me, that strikes the image of New England than, than dairy farms and, and those yeah. cows. And here we have a couple of stories. Uh, one that I found, uh, well, both of them are very disturbing, but uh, one particularly disturbing, and that is uh, because these milk prices are plummeting because there's too much milk being produced, they said these are declining levels uh, not seen as low since 20 years ago. The regional cooperative, which deals with New England farmers across six states, have sent out a a notice to farmers for a suicide hotline because they're very concerned that dairy farmers are or might be become suicidal. This is really dire. My good friend, Steve Taylor, who used to be the agriculture commissioner forever and ever in the state of New Hampshire, also was a dairy farmer. And he, at the age of 79, is selling off his dairy farm. So understand, everyone, this is hitting in ways that nobody can possibly imagine. And the story about the the hotline for suicide is that you see a huge number of farmers, uh, much higher than in in the national average, who are committing suicide. But think about why. They have a connection to their work that is so different from you, from me, from Phil, from all of us, because this is about their home. This is about their heritage. They wake up at four in the morning. They don't take vacations. There is there, there, there's no it's symbiotic, you know, there. And so 
And they also don't have a lot of control over the price. So they can work incredibly hard, produce a tremendous amount of work, and get nothing for their effort. And then the next year, they can get a lot for their effort. So it is just, it is so inconsistent. We don't do what the Canadians do, for example, because what the Canadians do is the Canadians say, you can't produce more milk than is necessary. So they kind of keep this level always even. In a way, what it does, it protects farmers. You can't always produce too much. You can't produce too little. You have to produce this amount. And that actually protects the dairy industry. We don't do that in this country. So as a result, we've seen this high rate of suicide, which is frightening. And then the story of Steve Taylor selling off his dairy farm. And the only number of cows he's keeping is to sort of keep his open pasture open so it doesn't revert to, um, to forest again. But it really is about competition now because, you know, where are we selling our milk? To whom are we selling our milk? We're looking at the big trade wars that's actually hurting the dairy industry. Um, and this is both about history. It's about landscape. It's about dairy. And I think we really need to have a come to Jesus moment. You know, you may want a buck 45 for, you know, a container of milk because you're you're going to some, you know, grocery store. But in the end, what do you really need? You probably need this industry to survive. We've got to reconsider this. Whew, I found that just oh. really chilling, I have to say, both of those dairy stories. Patrick, Philip, had you heard anything about this? I mean, this was shocking to me. I've heard about it. I have to admit here on the Cape, we don't have much in the way of agriculture on the land, at least. And, and certainly dairy farms are non-existent, uh, essentially. So it, it's something where that tie to the land for us is more along the lines of, of fishermen mm-hmm. and the work they do. But you can see the same types of, of uh, kind of uh, mentality playing out in that, those issues. It, it really is you know, upsetting to hear in, in so many ways and, and, and really something to think about. All right. Well, moving over to you, Philip. Also upsetting, uh, the Rhode Island Democratic Party seems to be a little betwixt and between. They just withdrew two endorsements, meaning they had endorsed two candidates, and then they withdrew both of those endorsements. Talk to us. Yeah, never a dull day when you're following the Rhode Island Democratic Party. Um, The context here is that the Rhode Island Democratic Party pretty much dominates politics at all levels in this state. We are not quite a one-party state, but for many years we've been very close, and I think that's important context for all of this. Uh, One of those endorsements really made national news more than the other, and that was when, you know, it's endorsement season, it's an election year, and the Rhode Island Democratic Party put out its list of endorsements, and many people were surprised to see that uh, for the race of an incumbent progressive state rep named Moira Walsh, who is a, a waitress, a single mom who has been very outspoken, um, she, she, the incumbent, uh, she was not, did not get the endorsement of the Rhode Island Democratic Party and instead a relatively little known and apparently recently registered Democrat named Michael Earnhardt got the endorsement. Well, turns out Michael Earnhardt voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and as an article from Slate noted, an archived version of Earnhardt's Twitter page accessible on the Wayback Machine, uh, Features retweets of posts by Roseanne Barr, Donald Trump Jr., Pizzagate conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich, and alt-right journalist Laura Loomer. In that same article, Moira Walsh told Slate that the state party's endorsement is a, quote, punishment for her opposition to the positions of Rhode Island's House Speaker Nicholas Mattiello, a pro-life Democrat who had an A-plus rating from the NRA in 2016. She said to Slate, this is all very expected with the way our political machine is run in Rhode Island. So this story pretty quickly went national that a state Democratic Party had endorsed a Trump-voting recently registered Democrat over a progressive female outspoken incumbent. And 
And uh, somewhat comically, the Rhode Island Democratic Party rescinded the endorsement, kind of like, uh, let's hope, pretend this all never happened. And in doing so, they also rescinded another endorsement of a guy running for state rep in East Greenwich who had a criminal record. Um, and so it goes in Rhode Island. Uh, this is just the, la- the it's latest. It's made for TV. It's made for TV. I, oh, I, my God. I tell you. Yeah, and and I, I, have to, I have to add that uh, former state, a former state rep who is currently under indictment for perjury and fa- uh, filing false paperwork about where he lived, there was a convincing investigative uh, story from WPRI Channel 12 showing that this guy really didn't live in his district and he's oh currently God. under indictment. He uh, was endorsed by his local Democratic committee, not the state party, but the local Democratic committee. So uh, he may be back in the state house as he awaits trial. Um, that's what's well, going on. there's some issues. <laughs> Arnie, I want you to take this case of the waitress, the progressive waitress who until recently was not supported by the local Democratic Party and put it in a, in a more national context in this way. Black women candidates, Democratic candidates, have yeah. complained loudly about no support from all of the traditional Democratic apparatus. This woman is not black, but she's a young white woman. She is, and she is a woman, and she's progressive. And she too did not initially get the support of the party. And what does that say? Um, as there are all kinds of conversations about need for change or looking forward, etc. They learn et nothing. Mm. They learn nothing. I posted this on Facebook. Everyone, I'm going. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe. This. So let me remind everyone: the primary is what September 16th. Am I correct, Phil? So you have a September 16th primary. Here's what I've been saying over and over again on my radio show. I've been talking to the DCCC, the DNC. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Let people that are bubbling up from the bottom, people that you have never met, people that are progressive. In this case, this was an incumbent who was progressive. And let the people speak. This is about their choice, not about the DNC's choice, the state Democratic Party's choice. It is about the base and their connection to the base. This is a consistent problem. They want to manipulate the outcomes. It's really interesting. Republicans like to manipulate the final outcome because they want to disenfranchise voters. The Dem- Democratic Party, however, goes into the primary, and they basically want to pick and choose. And what you saw, for example, in Virginia, remember that amazing Virginia race where all these people that nobody knew suddenly won, a transgender woman won, all these things? They couldn't even picked out of a lineup by the Democratic Party. Thank God, because they probably would have put the wrong person. So this is really an example of not learning anything from the 2016 election, repeating that mistake again. We are looking at where is the future of the party. The future of the party is very, very different. They want to go back to the past. In a lot of ways, they're sort of dragging, being dragged behind Donald Trump, who looks to the past. I think it's time to look to the future. After the primary, fight like hell for what needs to happen in November, but don't try to manipulate the outcome. That you have an executive director of the Democratic Party in Rhode Island actually saying, this is what he said, I didn't know he had a criminal record. <laughs> well, uh, duh. <laughs> then, how, then how did you make an informed decision yeah. to support this guy? So this really says this is more knee-jerk anti-progressive, anti-female, anti-whatever. It is not about the party, and it is not clearly about the people. This is a national story, not just a Rhode Island story. Callie, can I add one Uh, more point of context? Quick, Moira Walsh uh, made headlines, maybe even national headlines in 2017, uh, for pointing out the, quote, insane amount of drinking that went on at the Statehouse during the legislative session. And I have to read this quote. She went on talk radio and said, quote, the drinking, it is the drinking that blows my mind. You cannot operate a motor vehicle when you've had two beers, but you can make laws that affect people's lives forever when you're half in the bag. That's outrageous. So that is also perhaps some context here. 
No kidding. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our regional roundtable, Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, and Patrick Cassidy. And we're talking about the New England stories you may have missed this week. So, Patrick, I come to you for some actual good news. Now, some people may take this the wrong way, but Target is coming to the Cape Cod Mall, and people are really excited. And by the way, I think I might be excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I thought you were talking about another story as you led into that, because I'm not one of those who's necessarily excited about Target. Oh, well, Patrick, get a grip. That's fine. (laughs) Again, to each his own. Um, But you're right. People are very excited about this. As Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce uh, CEO Wendy Northcross said, it's not usually the case when a new business is announced that you know the general public gets worked up about it, but uh, this Target uh, is coming to the Cape Cod Mall, and people are very excited. It's the first on the Cape, um, and it was interesting how it played out. We uh, a month or two ago started reporting on uh, a red tenant and a green tenant that were proposed to come into the Sears space at the mall, and you know you looked at the rendering for the red tenant, and you're like. Duh, that's Target. Um, they were hiding the actual name, though. Uh, it was seemed obvious. Speculation said it was Target. And as it turns out, that's true. And they're going to put this 80,000-square-foot store in the mall. It's the 47th uh, store in Massachusetts for Target. 80,000-square-foot, um, believe it or not, is their small-format store. Um, these stores are obviously large. They're going to make it so it has beach stuff. It's very Cape-related. Uh, the small-format stores apparently allow them to cater to local needs. Um, but, yes, people are... Are very excited. We still don't know who the green tenant is. I'm more excited about that maybe because I'm thinking <laughs> sporting goods, EMS, who's going to be in there? Uh, but uh, they say they're going to hire 100 people. One of the other interesting things that uh, Wendy Northcross said uh, was she's, you know, people are very excited about it. It seems like it's going to be a good thing. Uh, prices, everything like that. But she's like, there's one thing. Are they going to be able to find enough people to fill those jobs? Mm. And that speaks to this larger national right. uh, issue of a tight labor market. And so she, she was really uh, that was kind of our takeaway quote or at the end of the story was that uh, we're really in this tough place as far as labor goes. And are they going to be able to fill those hundred jobs? Well, I hope they are. And I want to just clarify something for people who, you know, here in Boston, they're, they're fighting against chains, specifically Starbucks moving into the North End uh, on Martha's Vineyard, you know, to try to keep chains out. This is in a space where there was already a store. There was Sears. So they're up, as far as I'm concerned, they're upgrading to Target, which is going to focus in this particular area on the Cape with a lot of seasonal summer items, which means it's very attractive to people on their way on vacation. So year-round residents will get a benefit from it, as well as seasonal benefits. It really is a win-win uh, for a lot of people in that in that area. So that's how I'm looking right. at Absolutely. it. You know? It's at the mall, too. So it's, again, not like yeah, they're right. developing a new building or anything like that, as, as you said. It's only finding staff. It's where are they going to live? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. Where are they going to live? Well, there's, afford to live? That's, that's, a that's a whole other thing. Issue. Yes, it is. Exactly. All right, Arnie, to you. Uh, you're having a big meeting on July 25th, same date as the meeting on Cape Cod, to talk about these internet taxes because when the law changed, making it now possible to collect these internet taxes, uh, it put New Hampshire in a bit of a bind because New Hampshire is the place people go to not pay taxes. <laughs> All right. So the, the, the case the case that we're talking about is South Dakota versus Wayfair Inc. And it is the story about shopping. We now have different shopping patterns. We don't go into bricks and mortar. We shop online. I want everyone who has never purchased online to please raise their hand. I see that nobody has raised their hands. We now know.
show that we're all equally guilty. Well, South Dakota suddenly realized that their tax revenue, their sales tax revenue, was basically going into the toilet. And they needed to do something because they needed to be able to access those sales tax revenue from online sales. So they went into the U.S. Supreme Court. 41 states, two territories, and the District of Columbia also filed uh, supporting briefs along with South Dakota because they saw the exact same problem happening in their state. The good news is that the Supreme Court agreed with South Dakota and said that we're going to change the concept of what is called, you know, nexus to a state. It used to be that you had to have a warehouse, a building, whatever, and now they're saying that is that that's an old school approach to how we look at sales taxes. We're going to have to sort of revisit that. And now, for example, in South Dakota, if you uh, are a business and you have sales of over $100,000, you could now be subject to the sales tax. Or you have more than 200 transactions, you can now be subject to the sales tax. I know the state of Massachusetts is looking at this. Well, New Hampshire, guess what? We don't have anything. We have high property taxes, but we don't do sales taxes and we don't do income taxes. So what are they going to do in this sort of fit or peak of anger? They're going to hold a special uh, session on July 25th because the governor wants to get around this new Supreme Court justice, uh, Supreme Court decision. And the problem is, I think there's a couple of things wrong with it. One, I think we're premature to do this. We don't even know exactly who is going to have to pay this tax, number one. Number two, we're probably going to start a trade war with those 41 states, two territories, and the District of Columbia. I feel just like Donald Trump is starting a trade war with the world. Chris Sununu is now starting a trade war, trade war with the rest of the states. And then last but not least, what happens if we pass legislation, and it turns out that uh, we're wrong, and all these businesses are suddenly subject to penalties, interest for delaying, all this kind of stuff. So we may be setting businesses up not to win, but to fail. We're going to spend all this money, probably with a number of lawsuits. I don't think we're going to be successful. And then the question is, if we had maybe helped a couple of handful of businesses spend anywhere from 10 to $50 a month in getting some kind of software to accommodate these sales, it would be a win-win, and we we would encourage people to come to New Hampshire because we're such a tourist state and buy in our bricks and mortar, and therefore you avoid the sales tax. So again, it's a very political season, but I feel like what we're doing here is a lot like what we're seeing happening on the national stage. Instead of recognizing how we should operate in the world, we're trying to sort of protect ourselves and not realize that New Hampshire is one of 50 states. Well, I'm going to leave it there because there's more to come on that story. <laughs> wow. And I'm moving over to you, Philip, with Sean Spicer, hometown guy, deciding to kick off his memoir tour, recalling his all of seven month stint as the uh, White House press secretary in Rhode Island. I, I, it looks like he's going to be getting a warm welcome. What are you hearing? I don't know. I have to start this with a disclaimer that I have deeply mixed feelings about giving this book more attention than it's already going to get. But yes, uh, former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, who was a Rhode Island native, he grew up in Barrington. He went to high school in Portsmouth. He got a master's degree at the Naval War College in Newport. He's going to be publishing a book called The Briefing, Politics, the Press, and the President late in July, which will give a, quote, behind-the-scenes look at his time in the White House. And Rhode Island is going to be a stop on his book tour. In fact, there are apparently multiple stops in Rhode Island on this book tour. And according to Channel 12, he was going to be followed by a documentary film crew. 
Um, I'm sure the listeners of this show don't need any help figuring out how they feel about Sean Spicer. You're probably in one camp or the other. What is interesting to note, and to go back to one of our previous uh, discussion topics today, at one of these events at Barrington Books, the event's going to be moderated by former Providence mayor and longtime Democratic Party power player and current Rhode Island Democratic Party national committeeman, Joseph Paolino Jr., um, which is interesting, I thought. Um, no word yet about how, if at all, these bookstores are preparing for protesters outside or whether hmm. or not it, bo- it will be a warm or chilly welcome. It remains to be seen. All I right. think I'm going to sit this one out personally. That's <laughs> fine. And we're leaving it there because I want to end on good news from Patrick. Patrick, <laughs> the Provincetown Theater has been saved. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that's the case. Uh, this is the art house uh, in Provincetown. It's very popular. It's used for the facility. That space is used for the Provincetown International Film Festival. Festival. Province sound very theater friendly, but there's only a certain number of spaces there for that. There was a businessman, Benjamin DeRoyder. He has a restaurant, the 1620 Brew House on Commercial Street, and he was going to expand that restaurant. He owns the building that the art house is in. His plans was to, to open up a brewery and then tear down the walls between them and have it all, and the theaters would go uh, by the wayside. There was an extraordinary amount of response to that, most of it negative. People in Provincetown said, we want to keep these theaters. They're important to us. Uh, DeRoyder said, I've changed my mind. I made a mistake. I'm looking at this again, and I'm going to come up with a way to have both the theater and my brew house uh, dream there in the same place. I don't know how that's going to happen exactly. It's short on details, but the response has been fairly positive at this point. People looking at it and saying, Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Cautious optimism, I think, was one of the words used. But again, for Provincetown, theater is a big deal. I like breweries as well and theater. So it's, you know, to have both would be certainly something to go visit Provincetown for. But it does seem like a good turn in this story. Just to put a button on it, it was the home of the Provincetown International Film Festival, which is well known. So this is a really important victory, however they work this out. And to have art still remaining a center of a place that is so much in support of art and artists, I think is really important. So good news for all. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, which airs daily on WNHN-FM 94.7. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Patrick Cassidy is the news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, when Serena Williams spoke about her life-threatening childbirth, that was the first time many became aware of the rising number of childbirth and pregnancy complications and learned that millions of women most at risk are without the critical support they need. Starting tomorrow, researchers will explore innovative solutions to the problem in a first-of-its-kind Boston conference. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. And I just remember getting up and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, I can't breathe. Like, I couldn't take a deep breath. I told the nurse, I can't breathe. I need a, I need a, I need a mask. <laughs> so I put the, ma- the oxygen mask on and um, I started coughing because I couldn't breathe. That's tennis superstar Serena Williams in an HBO documentary during which she revealed her life-threatening childbirth scare. 
How is it that this wealthy and well-doctored woman was at risk? Turns out Serena is one of millions of women suffering complications of or dying from childbirth here in the most developed nation in the world. Alarmingly, the rates of these childbirth and pregnancy complications are on the rise. That's why researchers are calling for a new approach in supporting pregnant women in a first-of-its-kind conference this week at Boston University. Joining me in the studio, Lois McCloskey. She's the organizer of the conference called Bridging the Chasm Between Pregnancy and Women's Health Over the Life Course. It's meeting tomorrow and Tuesday. She is director of the Boston University Center for Excellence, of Excellence for Maternal and Child Health, and an associate professor and associate chair of the Community Health Services at BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Professor McCloskey. Thank you, Kelly. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Aviva Lee Peretz is chair of OBGYN at Boston University School of Medicine and a physician at the Boston Medical Center with a focus on women's health, especially diabetes and pregnancy. Hello, Dr. Lee Peretz. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. And also with me, Latrez Cole, who had her first baby 18 months ago after a pregnancy complicated by gestational diabetes. She joins us from 89.3 WRKF Studio in Baton Rouge. Welcome, Latrez. Hello. Okay, good to have you. Well, let me jump right in with you, Professor McCluskey, because I need for you to explain what you mean by bridging the chasm between pregnancy and the health of women and why this is a critical gathering to examine this this chasm that you describe. Yes. Let me evoke for a minute the image of the chasm, which is very intentionally chosen to name our conference. Chasms, when we think about it, they are deep, they're craggy, they're usually very long-standing, and to get around them, if there is no bridge, takes a lot of work, miles and miles of trudgery walking around to the other side. So the other thing I want to say is to build a bridge across a chasm is very tricky and takes a village. So the chasm we're talking about is the chasm between what we normally do in this society, which is care very much for women while they're pregnant so that they have healthy babies, and then they're forgotten about in this healthcare system after pregnancy is over, after that baby is delivered. There's a very wide chasm between maternity care in this country and what happens after that very immediate postpartum period, women's lifelong care. And this chasm is really costly to women. The consequences are big because the complications that can happen during pregnancy give us terrific signs of what women's underlying health can be, and yet we pay no attention. And gestational diabetes is just one of those examples because women with gestational diabetes, 60% of them go on to develop type 2 diabetes, and all those opportunities for prevention are lost without a bridge across that chasm. That's my guest, Professor Lois McClowski. Now, over to you, Dr. Aviva Lee Parrots. You oversee high-risk pregnancies with a special focus on gestational diabetes. And when we talk about gestational diabetes, it sounds like something, I mean, I know people get it, women get it, but it sounds like something we should have defeated 19th century. Why is it that this complication seems to be happening more and more and other complications such as the one that Serena Williams had are coming to the fore? As Professor McClowski has said, there's a need to bridge this chasm, but I'm just trying to understand why are we here? I think there are several factors that lead us to where we are here, at least in the United States. Our mothers in the United States over the years have been, are older. 
they have a higher body mass index and more comorbidities or other medical problems associated during pregnancy. And so these three things lead to an increased risk of complications such as gestational diabetes, but referencing other life-threatening complications of pregnancy, such as hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, preeclampsia, that's probably the number one risk factor for severe maternal morbidity and mortality, infection, bleeding, and all these things are related to who and how healthy are women when they come to pregnancy. And so I think that there's this tidal wave of women who are less healthy when they get to pregnancy, and that has led to increased pregnancy complications. That's my guest, Dr. Aviva Lee Parrots. Now, over to you, Latrus. You had your baby 18 months ago. You went in understanding that you had a risk of diabetes, period, because of your father. But you were looking for a different kind of guidance from your OBGYN and then later your primary care physician. Talk to us about what happened instead. Sure. So... Um, when I became pregnant, I visited my OBGYN and, um, of course there's all of the joy and the happiness that goes along with that announcement. My husband and I have been trying for uh, about three years and, um, but once there it was, I was just expecting to get more of a, hey, here's, here's the test that we're going to do today or here's the next step and, and that type of thing. Um, which I, I didn't really get. It was it was more of like a, you know, at this visit, here's what's going to happen today. And so I just happened to be a planner. And so I was looking for more of that planning type um, environment. My OBGYN is great. But once I got to the, um, the testing at about 14 weeks, I was tested earlier than what is um, normal from what I had heard. Of course, it was my first pregnancy, so I had no idea when I should be tested. Um, And I was diagnosed with uh, gestational diabetes at that time, which I was thankful to know early on. Um, And then I proceeded from there. Once they told you that you had gestational diabetes, did it feel as though the focus turned a little bit more to you and your care as opposed to the baby? I guess what I'm hearing is that some women feel as though the focus is so much on the baby that the woman sort of gets lost in all of this. Um, The focus definitely is on the baby. I felt that the diagnosis was um, you have gestational diabetes and I was struggling to know exactly what that meant, right? Um, I was told by the nurse when when the results came back that, okay, you know, your result was at the cutoff of 92, and so we're going to have you see um, a nutritionist and, you know, a follow-up team to know next steps. It wasn't treated as, as a big, you know, huge deal, which may have just been a a way to kind of, you know, keep me calm and that kind of thing. But I felt it was a big deal. Um, But at the at the end of the day, it wasn't like this rush of, hey, we need to do this, this and this and this, you know, Hmm. next. That's my guest, Latrez Cole, um, who had her first baby 18 months ago after a pregnancy complicated by gestational diabetes. Back to you, Dr. Lee Peretz. Why does there seem to be not, at least I'm not hearing until recently, it seems like this is not a focus, and a lot of women are suffering these complications. We're using gestational diabetes as the example, but there's a number of common ones that are out there in front. And it, until such time as some, somebody like a Serena says something, 
then I don't think most people know about it. I think you're exactly right. I think the focus, both how we fund research, how we set up pregnancy care, maternal care, it's really focused on the outcome for the baby, and very little attention is given to actual maternal health. And there's so many things that happen in pregnancy that have long-term effects for maternal health, which affects future pregnancies and the health of the family and the health of society ultimately. So... Um, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, which is the society that um, oversees high-risk pregnancies, is trying to refocus from fetal disease to maternal disease and trying to figure out how to use pregnancy as a way to optimize women's health. So I think that it's just a reflection of how society feels about women hmm. and babies. And babies, of course, are, you know, who doesn't like a baby hmm. and they're kind of a blank slate, pure the whole idea about women brings a lot of baggage to the table, which we could talk about for hours. Yeah. But I would say that the focus is really on the fetal health. And when you think about gestational diabetes as a paradigm, really most of the issues during pregnancy are about the fetus and the baby because the mother will ultimately feel well. However, it's a giant risk factor for not only the risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but poor cardiovascular health, hypertension, heart disease. So do we tell women, hey, this is really important for you to pay attention to after pregnancy and for your lifelong care with your primary care doctor? I don't think we do a good job of that, despite proclamations by all our societies to do that. So, uh, Professor McCloskey, uh, what your 70 invited researchers, and this is a very deliberately closed group so that you can really focus on a design, you hope, that will come out of this that will not only bridge but be kind of a blueprint for the way that pregnant women and their aftercare should be thought of as a whole. Uh, emphasize, if you will, how, why that, it, it seems so obvious, I guess, and it, yet it's never happened. It's bizarre right. that there is dis a disconnect between what happens to the woman with her OBGYN and then later in life, which has a direct connection, as Dr. Lee Peretz has said, to her overall health. Right. It does seem obvious, doesn't it? Like a lot of things that we don't do anything about necessarily. What's really important here, though, is that it's not the first time maybe that this particular gap has been, eh, let's say, talked about in professional organizations. And certainly researchers talk about it all the time. The end of every paper is, oh, we should do something about this. But the gap also, or the, the new innovation, is that we're bringing other people to the table. We are, first and foremost, bringing women with the lived experience, patients, to this conference, policymakers from government, from the CDC, from NIH, people who are designing healthcare systems, and advocates, women's health advocates, because it does take that village to design something that will work. And one of the reasons that it exists is because the systems we built didn't have those people mm. at the table, most especially patients. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guests are Professor Lois McCloskey, you just heard her, of the Boston University School of Public Health, Dr. Viva Lee Peretz of Boston University School of Medicine, and Latrez Cole, whose first pregnancy 18 months ago was complicated by gestational diabetes. So let me talk about something else that's been now demonstrated in many studies and an investigation by ProPublica, which is the really amazing, huge, 
awful racial gap between uh, what is happening with pregnancy complications and maternal deaths of African-American women. And in this case, I don't mean that euphemistically. I mean African-American women as opposed to women of color. They are the most hard hit in this, and the gap is huge. And I want to just play a clip here. This is from Democracy Now! program. And they covered a protest which was happening outside of Erica Gardner's funeral. People may remember that Erica Gardner was the daughter of the man who was choked to death outside and who said, I can't breathe. And she actually died four months after giving birth. Um, We should say here that complications from pregnancy can go on up to a year. That's considered to be part of the time. So that's that makes sense in this instance. Anyway, here are these protesters outside of Erica Gardner's funeral speaking about racism connected with maternal and child health. Erica died. Erica died. After suffering a heart attack. After suffering a heart attack. Erica attributed her failing health. Erica attributed her failing health to the trauma of racial injustice. A new study of mothers in New York City found that black mothers are 12 times more likely to die than white mothers and that racism kills. This is not an isolated incident. So I just wanted to play that because people are making the connections about how these seemingly, not innocent, but regular, normal um, health conditions like an asthma, as Erica suffered, but related to a heart attack, which is Dr. Lee Peretz has said, is very important as we think about many complications. So Professor McCluskey first addressed this huge, wide racial disparity in these complications and also maternal deaths. What does that mean? Well, it means, Callie, really exactly what those protesters are saying. It means all the ways that racism, institutionalized racism in particular, be it in our housing policies and access to food, to health system embedded implicit bias that can exist, um, have everything to do with the experience of stress and then physiologically how that stress gets embodied and, as some say, you know, baked into our DNA. Dr. Lee Peretz can talk much more eloquently than I about the way that really intricately happens in our metabolisms and leads to or makes it more likely that something like diabetes or prediabetes or heart disease is likely to happen. But I know from my own research that preterm birth is an example, infant mortality, and the huge racial gap there, although the maternal death racial gap is even greater. Finally, research has investigated and found that the constant, not the episodic stress of a racial incidence, but constant exposure to racism and one's need to react to it has leads to higher cortisol levels, which in ways then go on to lead to higher um, preterm labor and preterm birth. So it's finally getting its due recognition in the public health field and medical field, I think, 
although not necessarily within our healthcare systems. And Dr. Um, Lee Peretz, it, it doesn't matter where you are on the economic scale. You can be Serena Williams or you can be mm-hmm. anybody else, much further down on the economic scale and still have the same experience. That should be made clear. That's correct. And as, as Lois alluded to, the impact of continuous stress on all kinds of health outcomes, not just pregnancy outcomes, is getting some new light. And it's very complicated, obviously, and not probably very linear, probably very multifactorial. But when we talk about interventions to optimize health, there are many things that we know are evidence-based that will optimize people's health. Yet, it's very hard to implement them, and there's low uptake. For example, in gestational diabetes, we recommend that people have postpartum glucose testing to make sure that either their diabetes has resolved or they actually have diabetes and need care. Yet, despite everybody's proclamations, we have not been able to get that above like 40%. Even if you have commercial health insurance, you still do not have an increased uptake. So there seems to be a barrier to implementing these things, which is even higher for people who of color, African-Americans, people on the margins of society, whatever thing sets you apart. And so the question is to look at it from a systems point of view. What are the things that providers do? What kinds of implicit bias do providers have when they're interacting with patients? What are the infrastructure barriers? And what are the barriers of the of the patients? What is the self-efficacy of the patients to be able to say, hey, ask a question. Hey, I need this. And I think that we need to attack it from all sides, not just from one side. And that's the beauty of the conference, bringing patients and community resources together. Which leads me back to you, Latrez, because you would assume, like I would as a patient, that there would be some talking between all of the folks who are have access to your medical records, that your OBGYN would know what your primary care physician is and vice versa. And you found that um, one didn't necessarily want to know what the other one was doing. Right. Um, so my... Once I found out I was pregnant, my primary care physician um, let me know that all of the care, all of my care would turn over to my OBGYN um, at that point. And there was really no reason to see her unless I really wanted to, which was interesting to me. I I had no idea that that would be the case. Um, and, and then I found out once, once my pregnancy was done, I, of course, go for my annual um, checkups and evaluations every year. And so I went in for my annual after I had the baby. We talked a little bit about the baby. And um, I just happened to mention that I had gestational diabetes. And there was just an affirmation of, okay. But she didn't say that she knew about it or here's what we should do next. Um, and so my... Or here's what the, the plan should be for later yeah. on in terms of testing the way that Dr. Lee Peretz was talking about. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I left the hospital, I was given the, the lab order to follow up, and, and I did. However, I it, it was very hard to do so. Um, mm. Breastfeeding, not able to drive. Um, I did have a C-section. And so there were some, some factors there, but I had a great support system. But I can't imagine if I didn't. Exactly. Um, and then I can't imagine if I just wasn't a person who's hypersensitive to hey, this could have an implication on me because, you know, of my family history. Um, I That's think there's very a big important. gap. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's take a listen to uh, Annie Waldman. She was a reporter with ProPublica, did this investigative research, uh, how hospitals are failing black mothers. 
But what we wanted to know was what can hospitals do? Does this disparity persist at the hospital level? Could this actually, some, actually be something that doctors have some influence on? Could this actually be something where it's an unconscious bias which is in our healthcare system? And where'd you find it? Uh, we found that definitely that's the case. If you look at hospitals that disproportionately serve black communities or communities of color, you will find that the number of birth complications are exceptionally higher. So, again, that was Annie Waldman, a reporter at ProPublica, and she was speaking about uh, her uh, research and article on Democracy Now!, the television program. Lois McClowski, that falls right in your lap and what you researchers are dealing with, all of these issues about coordination and understanding uh, beyond just uh, the basic statistics. That's right. I mean, can we even imagine a health system that inspires women and supports them at the same time to care for themselves. Yes, because they're mothers, but also because they are women. And they are, in many cases, the glue that's holding families together and communities together. What would that look like? You know? When you are, your, your 70 people coming together understand the issue and are trying to move forward um, in, a, in a concrete way, mm. what do you want uh, other people coming out of this conference to take from what you will have designed or put together as a, as a kind of blueprint to go forward. Right. We've got two main goals, and one of them is, in fact, to co-create among these different kinds of people a national agenda for both research needed but action. And the second goal is to hold together a network of people, have this network grow across these various types of work, and then have, we're going to have an online portal for us to all continue to communicate with one another and to collaborate on these advocacy projects, be it some legislative changes, some healthcare system experiments, perhaps. And that's going to happen over time. So... What specifically we want to see happen, I mean, I can come up with some fantasies about that, but that is what the conference is all about, <laughs> okay. for us to think out of the box. You know, what would it be to have a real health home for women, for example, right. much like children with special health care needs have made happen, or parents of them made happen for that community to to assure continuity, to have doulas that last longer than just your birth, to have patient navigators, ex you know, all kinds of ideas and beyond those that I hope will come out of. Innovative, fresh, out-of-the-box ideas. Well, it's a critical conversation at a critical time, so I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Lois McClowski is organizer of Bridging the Chasm Between Pregnancy and Women's Health Over the Life Course, a first-of-its-kind conference this week, Monday and Tuesday, July 16th and 17th. She is director of the Boston University Center for Excellence for Maternal and Child Health and an associate professor and associate chair of the Community Health Sciences at BU School of Public Health. Aviva Lee Peretz is chair of OBGYN at Boston University School of Medicine and a physician at the Boston Medical Center with a focus on women's health, especially diabetes in pregnancy. And Latrez Cole had her first baby 18 months ago after a pregnancy complicated by gestational diabetes. She joined us from 89.3 WRKF Studio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. 
In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Wakanda Boingapai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.